Good evening, everybody. My name's Mickey. I'm a real alcoholic. And as mentioned, I've been sober by the grace of God, the mercy of God, since February 5th of 1987. And for that, I'm really grateful. My mom is so proud, and the state of Texas is relieved. So <laughs> I live in Bryan, Texas, uh, sister city to College Station, Texas A&M University, where the men are men and the sheep run scared. <laughs> and the women are cunning, baffling, and powerful. <laughs> so, my home group is 18 miles up the road in a little town called Hearn, Texas. It is the place I took my first drink and uh, where I have my home group, and I just love it. Um, you know, I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and has it not been the most beautiful day of the whole year? You know, it's just fantastic, and I'm truly honored to be here. And uh, 18 years ago, I was introduced to my brother. We have the same father, different mothers, and he lives in Paducah. Larry, raise your hand. And uh, Larry drove over here to be with his baby sister, and uh, I'm so proud about that too, you know. we uh, He found me 18 years ago, and we've uh, worked on developing a relationship, and it's just been really amazing. So... Um, if I make it to Monday, if I don't quit breathing, I'll be 67 years old. And uh, so happy early birthday to me. <laughs> Didn't think I was going to make it this long, nor did I think I'd be sober almost 36 years. But Alcoholics Anonymous is amazing, and God has wonderful plans. You know, I, I, uh, I always talk about, uh, you know, being sober, but, you know, and I always forget to talk about steps 10, 11, and 12, and I just want to touch on that because, you know, if you stay sober, you don't have to you don't have to go back out to improve your story. Stay here, you know. <laughs> and steps 10, 11 and 12 have allowed me to continue to grow with the things that happen in life, you know. We're all going to deal with all kinds of things. Wonderful things are going to happen and there's maybe some tragic things that happen. You know, uh on my 29th sober birthday, I went to my home group and uh Everybody said wonderful things about me, and we ate cake. I always say, if you want to stay sober, you got to eat cake. And uh, I, I came home, and at midnight, uh, my daughter called me screaming, and her husband had taken his own life. And I'm going to tell you what, uh, you know, thank God for the way the program works. Um, you know, AA just absolutely engulfed us. And uh, two weeks after that, I had to put my dog down. She was 17 years old, and... For the dog lovers here, you know how painful that is. And right behind that, my sister got cancer, and uh, it was terminal, and she ended up passing away. So I'm trying to take care of my mother. I'm trying to take care of, you know, my mother just lost her child, and my daughter lost her husband, and I'm trying to take care of, and I, 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 I. And, you know, no matter how long you've been sober, these things will creep up on you. One of my good friends always said, you know, when I got through with my fifth step, the ego was gone. But like a thief in the night, it returns. <laughs> and that's why I keep coming back. And that's why I keep doing the next right thing that's offered to me. And, you know, no matter how crazy it gets, and I try to take back control, and I'm trying to manage, and I'm trying to direct, you know, surrender has been my saving grace to be able to get on those knees and bow that head and say, God, here I am. You know, what do I need to do? And the answers always come. Those promises continue to get fulfilled, and, and I'll be forever grateful for this program. I'm so grateful I wasn't able to just quit. You know, I wouldn't have the relationships I have today. I wouldn't have the, the uh, 
being able to clear away the wreckage of my past and, and, you know, to live free, you know. And I used to think freedom was just when you weren't in jail, you know. <laughs> that was true a lot of the time. But, you know, I'm just so grateful. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to get that out of the way. But 10, 11, and 12 have been more important to me in the last uh, five years than they ever have in, in my whole entire history. So I didn't start drinking until I was 12, and it's kind of late nowadays, you know. Um, we get started really early with things. But there was a lot wrong with me before I ever took that first drink. I was born selfish and self-centered. I, I, you know, I was born with everything having to be about me. Now, Larry never met our father, and that's probably good for him. Um, but my father, my father was a wife-beating, child-beating alcoholic. He was a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And when he drank, he became dangerously and disgustingly antisocial, as the book describes. And uh, my mother put up with it just about as long as she could. And when I was about 10 years old, she gave him the ultimatum, quit drinking or leave. And he left. And for years, I thought my father chose alcohol over his family, that, you know, he didn't love us. And... It wasn't until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and began to understand what was wrong with me that I, I really believe to this day, thank God for the St. Francis prayer, Lord help me to understand rather than be understood, that I understand now that he could not stop drinking. And he left because that was the only kind and loving thing he could do. And uh, I understand that today. And, uh, you know, it was really hard on my mom. It was back in the 60s and Divorced women were not, you know, favored, and she couldn't get loans at the bank. It was really difficult, but my mom refused to go on, on uh, government assistance, and she's a very proud woman, and my, I'm so proud of her. My mother was the first woman postal carrier in Robertson and Brazos County, in the two counties I live in. She really opened the door for a lot of women to come into that field, and at one time, she was a police officer. She carried a gun on her hip, and and uh, they didn't know what to call her, so they called her a meter maid, um, you know. But she opened the door for a lot of women uh, during that time, and uh, she's the most amazing woman. Larry can attest to that. She's, she's 90 years old now. Um, a couple of years ago, right before COVID hit, she had a lot next door. She gifted that to me, and I was able to build a house uh, next door to her. So my life the last few years has been taking care of my mom. In the last 35 years, I have been the best daughter to a woman who's so deserving that I could possibly be. Now, I falter at times, thank God for AA, you know. She'll even tell me, don't you need a meeting? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, back to, you know, before I came into AA, I was just selfish and self-centered. While my mom's out walking 10 miles in the rain, hail, sleet, and snow delivering mail, um, I'd love to tell you she came home to a cooked meal and a cleaned house, but that wasn't the case because it was all about me and what I wanted to do. And uh, that didn't change. It sometimes doesn't change today. But, uh, you know, um, I, I was just a, a terrible. I, I was a rebel. I was a rebel with a cause. I was a rebel without a cause. And I was a rebel because. I started doing a lot of things that young girls don't do. I was thinking about it earlier when I was sitting there, you know. I started getting tattoos at a very young age. And, uh, you know, 50, 55 years ago, that wasn't a cool thing for girls to do. And now everybody's got them. But, you know, um, I started getting tattoos. But I never had any tattoos on my breast, and there was a reason for that. As a young girl hanging around the tattoo parlor, I heard the story of a young woman 
who went and had a rosebud tattooed on her breast, and when she turned 75, it had become a long stem rose. <laughs> so, never did that. But I started hustling pool, and I was a good hustler, and uh, made a lot of money in the pool halls. Not old enough to be in there, but by God, I, I did whatever I could. And um, if you couldn't do it, you know, I was going to do it. Now, my sister was the class favorite. My sister was the straight-A student. My sister was the cheerleader. And on Friday nights, while she was cheering the football team on, I was in the parking lot stealing hubcaps, you know? <laughs> um, and that's just how we were. And it wasn't a big deal. I was walking down the street in Hearn, Texas, 12 years of, of age, and the neighbor had his garage door open. And in his garage were these cases of long neck Miller beer. And they'd been sitting out in the heat of the summer. They had dust and cobwebs on them. That guy couldn't have been an alcoholic. I don't know why he had all that stash, you know? And um, so we went in there, being the little thieves that we were. We stole some of this hot long neck Miller beer. Went down to my friend's house, opened it up. Of course, it foamed all up. We sucked that foam off. We didn't know anything about drinking, you know? I'm 65, 75 pounds, uh, and, you know, drank enough to where I got that feeling of intoxication, almost instantly followed by nausea and vomiting. We didn't have those skills that would come later on, you know, appropriately coating your stomach before you go out drinking. Um, you know, uh, we didn't know about putting your finger down your throat to puke so you could go back and drink some more. Nor did we know about putting one foot on the floor to keep the room from spinning. That one's real important, you know? And we got in the house, and I woke up the next morning with my first hangover. My head was pounding, my eyes were bloodshot, and I can remember my friend looking at me and said, my God, Mickey, I'll never do that again. And she never did. The rest of our years in junior high and high school, I never saw that girl tie one on. She quickly saw what the problem was, found the solution, and went on about her way. And I was just as sick as she was, and I looked at her and I said, you're absolutely right. I'll never do that again either. And I never did. I never drank hot Miller beer again. <laughs> but something happened to me that was different than what happened to her, and I wouldn't understand that until 20 years later when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, that that brief period of intoxication was so elusive that for 20 years I would do whatever I could to experience that sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a few drinks. You know, and I started seeking it out everywhere I could. Uh, somebody mentioned Katie and Charlie from Texas earlier, and Katie always talked about, you know, getting that creepy guy at 7-Eleven to buy your booze. Uh, did that, you know, rob the parents' liquor cabinets, do whatever we could uh, to find that magic that, that was just so wonderful for a period of time until it wasn't. Um, I started uh, doing those other things, finding uh, better living through chemistry at about the age of 14. I started smoking those funny cigarettes and uh, taking a lot of those black market pills where you take trips and never leave the room. <laughs> Want to paint a house without a ladder? <laughs> Lay on the ground, listen to the grass grow? <laughs> took a lot of prescription pills. My name, my name was never on the prescription bottle, but by God, I took a lot of prescription pills. And it was not uncommon to find me out in a cow pasture after a heavy rain, you know. <laughs> when I tell you I'm a real alcoholic, my problem's not alcohol. And my problem's not those other things I do after I've been drinking. My problem is living life sober. 
I don't like sober. Sober for me is boring. Sober for me is depressing. And life just seems too overwhelming until I can once again experience that sense of ease and comfort. You know, uh, I was thinking about it one day, and, you know, people talk about this social drinking. Now, I've got my daughter uh, is not an alcoholic, but she's probably been to more AA conventions and meetings than most sober alcoholics. Um, but she's, she's the non-drinker, you know, she can drink, she could not drink, she can get drunk if she wants to. But we'll go out to dinner, and she'll order a mixed drink with her meal, and she may drink a third of it, maybe even a half of it on a good day. How do I know that? Because I'm watching, you know, <laughs> I'm watching. And she'll get up and walk out of the restaurant and leave it. Now, that's alcohol abuse, you know. <laughs> And uh, I'll say, why don't you finish that? She said, well, I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> Duh, you know? <laughs> One time, uh, she has to take uh, the lowest dose you can possibly get of Xanax whenever we fly somewhere. So she, she went to the doctor. He gave her a prescription of five. Uh, she took one. I had to hold her hand, lead her through the airport. She took <laughs> one on the way home. And I swear, about a year later, I was at her house. I went to get some Tylenol, and I saw this little pill bottle. You know, that always kind of excites me. So I look at it, and there's still three in there. And I said, why haven't you taken this? It's been a year. Well, we haven't been on a plane. You haven't felt anxious in a year, you know? But that's how normal people deal with these things, you know? And I, I don't understand that. Uh, more is always better. You know, the only thing I ever did socially was spread a little VD. And, you know, <laughs> it was back in the 60s and 70s. That's what we all did, you know. So I, I'm so grateful for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that has given me the ability to look back at my life and make some sense of it all. You know, I was... Uh, when I did my first four-step, I looked back at my life, and all I ever truly wanted was to feel loved, to feel special, to feel important, to feel needed. And I didn't learn how to get that in my house, you know? I didn't, I didn't know anything about that. And what happened for me at the age of 16, I traded all that for sex, wanting nothing more than to be desperately loved and needed and valued. And what happened at the age of 16, I found myself pregnant, not knowing what to do. If you're 16 and pregnant in this day and age, it's not a big deal. But in 1972, in small town Texas, it was a big deal. Uh, my sister, who was older, had moved to Austin by that time, a little bit more progressive. And I went and stayed with her and brought this child into the world. Um, a family had come into my life, again, God's mercy, came into my life and said, we will take this child and raise it as our own with the understanding, and I had to sign paperwork that I would never see that child again. And I made that deal because I knew it was best for that child. I was in no condition or shape to be a parent. And so I let that child go, and I came back to small town Texas with a scarlet letter on my forehead. Everyone knew what had happened, you know? And uh, the shame and the guilt was horrible. And I had no tools to deal with that depth of pain and loss. They didn't have counselors on every street corner like they seem to do nowadays. You know, and I, I didn't know how to, to deal with that. Because, you know, 
I would literally have to have alcohol or some other chemical in my body to walk out on the street and hold my head up and say, I don't care what you think. But being an alcoholic, I have this built-in sixth sense. I knew what people were thinking. And all anybody had to do was look at me. And I shame myself to the pit of hell for what had happened. I don't know how I graduated high school. Honest to God, I think they just wanted me out of there. And uh, 45 minutes after I graduated high school, I made my first geographical change. Because you see, Hearn, Texas was my problem. And if I can get out of there and go somewhere where no one knows me, no one knows my sordid past, I'm going to start over. I'll find me a good man and I'll get married and I'll have children to replace that child because I have a God-sized hole in my soul and I don't know how to fill that up. I've tried various methods to fill that God-sized hole, but there's only one thing you can fill a God-sized hole with and I had to find you to learn how to do that. So I moved 500 miles to a small town right outside of New Orleans, Louisiana where they party 24-7 and that was not a good move for somebody like me. I'm there two weeks, two weeks exactly, and I end up in jail, St. Charles Parish. And, uh, you know, that wasn't the first time I'd been to jail, but here I am. I'm 500 miles away from home, too proud to call home, and, uh, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, it doesn't take a genius to get out of jail. It just takes time, (laughs) right? And so uh, I finally got out of jail, and uh, Plan B kicked in. And I ended up marrying the guy I got busted with, so he couldn't testify against me, and I couldn't testify against him. <laughs> you got to have a good reason to get married, right? So we took in sick together, and of course, you know what happens. Uh, I, I immediately had a child, and I have two children from that marriage. And, uh, you know, thank God I don't get what I deserve. Thank God. Um, I s- lived in Louisiana until about the uh, early 80s, and uh, came back to Texas, and um, had done a lot of really poor things by the time I came back to Texas. And one of those was one night under the influence of alcohol, I let a friend put a needle in my arm. And from that point forward, I knew about living one day at a time. Uh, it was one of, when I moved to Texas, it was one of those spiritual moves, you know, in the middle of the night where you got the U-Haul and you're throwing everything in there because the heat is on and you got to go. And you cross that state line and you wipe the, so- the sweat off your brow and you're never going back there ever, ever, ever again. Of course, you don't know there's a step nine in your future, so you're kind of okay with it. Um, you know, after all, I'm just hanging out with my buddies, my pals, my compadres. They call that organized crime and they don't like it. So I got back to Texas and I just want to take a minute and talk about uh, being an alcoholic mother. You know, I had these two beautiful children, and uh, I wanted nothing more than to be a good mother, and I wanted nothing more than to be a good wife. But those three things, alcoholism in there, just don't mix. I'm the alcoholic mother that goes for the store, to the store for a loaf of bread, and I don't come back for three or four days, sometimes longer. And I left my children with people children don't need to be left with. And my children heard things that no child should ever hear. My children saw things that no child should ever see. And they experienced things that no child should ever experience because their mother's an alcoholic. I don't believe there's anything stronger than a mother's love for her child except the disease of alcoholism because it took me from my children on a regular basis. And I'm not proud of that at all. And thank God I don't get what I deserve. 
When I was six years sober, my daughter came to me. She was having some issues, and uh, the problem she was having while she explained was when I was at the store getting a loaf of bread, she would be re repeatedly molested by the neighborhood 15-year-old boys. How do you make amends for that? Saying I'm sorry just kind of describes your character, you know? But what I can tell you is that she allows me to share that because she says, Mom, I know we're not the only ones. And the thing that should have ripped us apart somehow seems to have drawn us closer together. And I had the closest relationship with that girl. And she took me to the airport, you know? And uh, thank God I don't get what I deserve. Well, if you're paranoid and you think they're out to get you, they are. <laughs> and in 1986, they came and got me, and I was charged with a, with a first-degree felony, punishable by up to 99 years in the penitentiary. And they're a little serious over there in Texas. If you haven't ever been to Texas, they're serious. And again, I'm just hanging out with my buddies, my pals, my compadres. They call that organized crime, and they don't like it. So I bond out of jail, and I'm one of those alcoholics that gets in trouble when you're in trouble. I think I recognize a few of you in here. <laughs> and uh, I went back, and I was held in, in jail at no bond and literally lost everything that was of any importance to me at all. You know, those material things that you think are going to make you happy. You know, those children, um, everything was gone, and I sat in Brazos County Jail. Now, I always found God when I went to jail, you know? <laughs> When nobody's looking, you kind of kneel down next to that cot and you say that prayer that you mean, but you know you can't live up to it. And that prayer is always, God, please get me out of this one. I'll never do it again. And you mean that. But, you know, every time I've been to jail, and there's been many times, um, I would say that prayer and I would mean it with all sincerity. But as soon as that door opened and they let me out, I left God locked up in jail because I didn't know how to take God with me into my daily life, not until I found you. And uh, so I was in there jail long enough, and I hear that jailhouse talk. And I don't know if that happens over here in, in Kentucky, uh, but in Texas it was, you know, if you go to AA, it looks good when you go to court. <laughs> and so I was almost willing to go to any leagues to look good when I went to court. <laughs> So they had another bond hearing, and they let me out, set a, a court date. They offered me 20 years in the penitentiary. I de declined that, and I decided to take it to the box, and, and that's a jury trial, you know? They said it was a jury of my peers, but there wasn't anybody there I'd have hung out with. <laughs> so while I'm waiting on this jury trial, I decided to go check out Alcoholics Anonymous. So I went to the Bryan group of AA, and I walked in, and you did what you do. You welcomed me with open arms, and you said, come in, sit down, have a cup of coffee. You're the most important person here. I'm facing 99, of course I'm the most important person here, you know? And they began to do what we do, share a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And a guy got up and talked about how his drinking had gotten so bad that his wife left him. And the pain of that was so great that he put the plug in the jug and he went to AA and his wife came back and his life was wonderful. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, one wife, one time? I mean, come on, you know, hang in there. I know women, I know women that'll drink with you. Don't give up, you know. 
But he was talking about true love, and that was an emotion that was so foreign to me, I, I couldn't understand. And then some girl jumped up, and she had worked at this minimum wage, part-time job long enough to save up for this used vehicle. And, oh, everybody just applauded. And I said, chick, see me after the meeting, man. I'll get you a better deal than that. Might not have a title, but I'll get you a better deal than that, you know. But she was talking about an honest day's pay for an honest day's wage. And, I, again, I'm so far removed from that, I don't understand. And I don't hear the music of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I went to a few meetings, and that court date came up, and by God, they found me guilty. And, uh, you know, I was. But <laughs> tried to tell him I wasn't, but, you know, um, the jury came back with a sentence that's probably the worst thing you can do to somebody like me, somebody who's run full throttle on self-will run riot. And they came back with this sentence of, 10 years intense supervision probation. I was furious. Now, I didn't want to go to prison for 20 years, but you know, I was prepared to go and do my turnaround and get out and run my own life. But now, they're gonna be breathing down my neck. They're gonna be telling me where I can go and who I can hang out with and who I can't. And they're gonna be telling me to pee in a cup, you know? And they're gonna be trying to run my life. Now, by this time, I'm living in an abandoned house I have no running water, no electricity. Everything I have is gone, and I'm worried about somebody telling me how to run my life. <laughs> but that's how sick I was, and I was so angry. But I knew that anger, what I know today is that anger comes from fear. And I knew I was never going to stay sober for 10 years. I knew they had me. I knew they had me. I left the courtroom that day and did the only thing I know how to do to make it go away for one more night. I'll worry about it tomorrow. It's always tomorrow, you know, always going to do something tomorrow. But for God's sake, let me have some relief right now. And so I continued to do what I was doing. And I had one young man that was left in my life. Everybody else was either dead or in jail or heading for the border. I had one young man who was left in my life. His name was Bud. He was 24 years old. I always liked those younger men. I thought if you got them younger, you could train them, you know. <laughs> So you go out to those sordid places. I love that, sordid places. I just love them. And you go out to there and you see him across the crowded dance floor and you do whatever you gotta do to reel him in and you give him your experience, strength, and hope, you know? <laughs> and pretty soon they get an idea of their own so you gotta get rid of them. But you can't get rid of them till you have another prospect, right? You can't ever be without one. Who are you gonna blame? And so, <laughs> If this guy cheated on me, well, I'm insanely jealous of the next guy. If this guy lied to me, now the next guy I'm insanely jealous and I don't trust. And on and on and on. And doing that fifth step, fourth and fifth step, I realized I abused a lot of young men for things they never did, you know? And control, oh my God, had to have that thumb on him. And, uh, but Bud had hung in there with me. I mean, he, had, he went through it all, watched me lose everything, and he was still there, watched me in and out of jail, still there. And he came to me one night. Imagine this, abandoned house. It's raining outside. It's cold. No running water, no electricity. Have a Coleman lantern sitting there. And he came to me, and he made a grave error. And that error was as he began to confront me with, the state of my life. 
of all the things that I had lost and that I was continuing to do the exact same thing that put me there. And he asked me questions like what life was about. And I had no clue. He began to ask me what I was going to do. And I had no answers. And then he made those points out. And I don't know about you, but when anybody points out my faults, I do whatever I have to do to get you out of my face. If that's attack you physically, done that. But what's worse, in my opinion, is verbally. And today, I guard my tongue as much as I possibly can because you can make amends for the things that come out of your mouth, but you can never unring the bell. And I began to slice that young man up. And he finally looked at me and he said, Mickey, I can't live like this anymore. I'm out of here. Grandstand play. You go ahead and leave, big boy, because I don't need you. I don't need anybody. I don't need anything. And if everyone would leave me alone, I'd be okay. And I believe that. I honestly believe that. And he walked out of my life that night, and I walked back in with that Coleman lantern and did what I had to do to make it go away for one more night. I'll worry about it tomorrow. The sun came up the next morning, as it always does, and I walked outside, and I found our sol his solution to our problems. And that young man's body hung from a tree limb with a rope around his neck. And while I was making it go away for one more night, he was making it go away for eternity. My life changed from that day to this. I've seen dead people before, but I look death in the eye. And when you have no God in your life, death is a really, really painful place to consider. I... Uh, Brought me, brought me to my knees. I tell you, I started running and running and running. And a lot of people told me a lot of things about his death. They told me he was a coward, that he couldn't face life on life's terms. Well, I'm pretty brave and I'm pretty tough, but I got scars to prove it. But I couldn't put a noose around my neck and jump or you'd have a different speaker here tonight. I don't believe his death was about being a coward any more than I believe it was about being brave. What it's about being in so much pain that death seems like your only solution. And I know some of you have experienced that depth of pain. I know today that that young man sits at the right hand of God, and uh, his death saved my life. Um, I started running and running like a crazed maniac, and you're trying to outrun your head, you know, and it just doesn't seem to work. And finally, the gift happened, the gift called surrender. Because I'm a tough broad, I, I don't cry. But one tear started down my face, and when it did, it opened the floodgates of years, years of uncried tears. And I was driving this truck, I hope I remember to tell you about it, I pulled off on the side of the road and broke down and bawled like a baby. And I don't know how long I was there, but after a while I sat up and looked around and I had that deja vu feeling, you know, I'd been there before. And it took me a little while to get oriented until I saw people walking down the sidewalk carrying our beautiful book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was outside that stupid AA meeting I had been to many months before. And the miracle of it, it was a quarter to eight and people were walking in. I knew I had to get in that meeting or I was going to die. And I started up the sidewalk, literally fell down. It's cold, it's raining, literally crawled into what I consider my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd love to tell you that the Brian group of Alcoholics Anonymous rushed to my side with a plate of donuts and a cup of coffee, saying, let us help you up, you poor, precious child of God. 
But what they did is they came and they looked down their long, skinny noses at me and they said, are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? And I was tired. I was tired. I had been fighting and running for so long. I was just tired. And I don't remember anything that was said, but I just sat in that chair. I had nowhere else to go. And they just said, keep coming back. I had nothing else to do, so I just kept coming back. And I showed up to every meeting that was possible. And, and I, you know, I would sit in those chairs, and I heard them talk about this was a program of total abstinence. So I went totally abstinent. And I got a lot sicker before I got a lot weller. I sat in those meetings and literally hung onto those chairs and shook uncontrollably. There were times I vomited on myself, and you cleaned me up, and you gave me some nourishment, and you said, honey, if you just don't put any more of that poison in your body, this too shall pass, and you never have to go through this again. And I dared to believe him. I dared to believe him, and I hung on, and I hung on. And after about six weeks, I started feeling a little bit better. And that's when I'm dangerous. Because when I feel a little bit better, I sit in the back, back of the room. In Texas, we call that death row. And uh, <laughs> I sit in the back of the room. And I start telling you how big and bad and tough I am. I'm loud. I really don't need a microphone. But I start telling you those, those big old war stories. I start telling you about those big deals I made out there on the street. I start talking about those narrow escape from the law. Now, I'm not telling you when I get caught, but I'm telling you about the, how big and bad I am out there. And finally, a guy named Charlie. Every group's got a Charlie. <laughs> Charlie's got 15 years sober, has an answer for everything, you know. I've learned, uh, you know, that uh, the old timers, if they don't know what the, the answer is, they tell you, it's in the book. <laughs> I use that all the time now. It's in the book, you know. But Charlie came to the back of the room. He said, Mickey, why don't you fix your coffee and come sit up front with us? And I thought, well... They finally want to know what it's like out there on the street, you know? So I fixed my coffee and went and sat up next to Charlie, who leaned over and said, sit here and shut up and listen. And Charlie probably saved my life, you know? So I sat there and I shut up and I listened. And for the first three months in Alcoholics Anonymous, the only thing they let me do was read how it works because there were no cuss words in how it works. I threw one in every now and then just to kind of liven that thing up, boy. It got dull quick. And somewhere along the line, I remembered, we didn't have cell phones back then, thank God. We didn't have cell phones, you know. Somehow I remembered I was supposed to see this probation officer. I didn't have a mailbox. I don't know, you know. But somehow I remembered I was supposed to go see her. So I walked in to see her, and I'm sick as a dog. And uh, she said, Mickey, can you do this? I said, no. And she tried every way to get me into something. And there was nothing available for somebody like me. I didn't have any medical insurance. I didn't have any hospitalization or $20,000 saved for a rainy day when I wanted to go to treatment, you know? When Alcoholics Anonymous says they can love you sober, by God, I'm living proof. I went through it right, right in here. And... Uh, you know, so I'm reading how it works, and then they made me the greeter at the door. <laughs> you had to really want to be sober when I was greeter at the door. <laughs> I don't look anything like I look today. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm 5'10". I weighed about 115 pounds when I came in. I was sunk in places you're not supposed to be sunk in, but I thought I was looking good. <laughs> I came in with these skin-tight blue jeans or these black leather pants tucked in these knee-high boots with the brass tip on the end, because I'm bad. 
I wore these black t-shirts with the neck cut out and the sleeves cut out because I'm hot. I had a big leather jacket I wore with the fringe that hung down all over it because I'm cool. And I had a big black wallet in my back pocket with a dog chain that hung down to my knee and hooked up on my belt because I got it going on. And I had a big wad of keys on my hip, so it made a lot of noise when I walked. You heard me long before you saw me. Now, I'm living in an abandoned house. My truck starts with a screwdriver, but I got a big wad of keys on my hip because, you see, I'm important. I had a black hat pulled down over my eyes, and I had to wear my sunglasses in that meeting because the lights were just a little bit too bright, you know? And I had those gloves that don't have fingers in them, and I'd sit and look across at you like this. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Get in, sit down, shut up, and listen, you know? One of the things that kept me coming back for a long time was Al-Anon. Because uh, in Bryan, they had a, at the First Methodist Church, they had an a open meeting downstairs, AA meeting, and upstairs they had an Al-Anon meeting and a closed AA meeting. And I used to love to go terrorize those Al-Anons, you know. <laughs> I'd start up those stairs, I'd be swinging that chain and rattling those keys, I'd round the corner and they'd scatter. <laughs> Lack of power was not my dilemma. I'd kind of hiss at them a little bit, you know, throw a little spit. You want some of this? I didn't think so. I hated women when I got sober, but particularly these Al-Anon women, because they were so... You know, they had these outfits on that matched, and their purse matched their pumps, and they had their hair fixed and their fingernails. They were so color-coordinated, you know? They looked uh, just like I do now. <laughs> <laughs> and God love them. They tolerated me enough until I could come to tolerate myself, and uh, uh, I'll be forever grateful for those, those women that came into my life. And I'm driving around in this uh, this truck I got. Now, when I got busted, they took all the vehicles I had out of my yard except this truck. And the reason they didn't take this truck is they didn't want this truck, you know. <laughs> I got a truck and a drug deal, gave a guy half gram of dope. He gave me the truck. I figured it out one day. Truck cost me $12.50, and I got ripped off. <laughs> it had sunk in a tank of water long enough to where the entire floorboard was rusted out. I had to steal carpet to put in the floorboard to keep trash from blowing up on me when I went down the road. <laughs> Stolen license plate, you know, used to have power steering, uh, worked some of the time. But, you know, I'd have to crank that thing up and crank it and crank it and crank it till it would start. But I always thought it was so kind that the, got, the men in AA would stand out on the porch to make sure I got my truck started until I realized they were making bets, you know? <laughs> But I became a chronic complainer in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, look at the state of my affairs. I got a $12.50 truck. I got the clothes on my back. I'm a convicted felon now. What am I going to do? And I would complain and complain. And Charlie would talk about getting a sponsor, getting a sponsor. And I'd look around and see that young man with 30 days over by the coffee pot. I said, Charlie, I bet he could keep me sober tonight. And Charlie said, around here, men work with men and women work with women. You see, all my life I tried to learn what it was to be a woman from a man. And I had to have women, you know, to teach me how to walk with the grace and dignity of a sober woman alcoholic. 
And so I, you know, I, I wasn't going to do one. And I just complained and complained. And finally one time after a meeting, this woman came up to me and said, Mickey, I want to tell you you're full of shit and turned around and walked off. <laughs> I couldn't believe she was talking to the most important person at the meeting like that. And I turned around to tell her that, and my mouth opened, and a voice like mine said, will you be my sponsor? <laughs> Grave error. I mean, aren't we supposed to have somebody that has walked in the same path that we've walked, that has some idea of what we've gone through? No. I needed someone who knew the big book and knew the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And Linda Kay had been a whack in the army. I mean, you know, we couldn't have been more polar opposite. But she whipped her head around and looked at me from the top of my head to the tip of the to to my toes and square in the eye. And she said, I don't like you, but I'll help you because I have to stay sober. Well, la-ti-da. <laughs> she said, do you have a big book? I said, no. She said, do you have any money? I said, no. She said, well, steal one. You can make amends later. So I did. <laughs> I've given away a lot of big books, I tell you. <laughs> And I would complain, and she would say hateful things to me like, get a job. <laughs> I wanted a position. I didn't want a job, you know. So I went to the noon meeting at the Brazos Club, and they said, are there any AA-related announcements? I said, yes, I need a job. <laughs> by the time that meeting was over, I had my first job, my first sober job. And I went to work in a sink factory, drilling holes in marble sinks on an assembly line. Perfect job for me, but I learned about punching a time clock. I learned about being on time. I learned about a day's pay for a day's wage. And when I got my first paycheck, I went to my, my home group, and when they passed that basket, I put my dollar in the basket, and I got a standing ovation. <laughs> they said, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? And my life began to take off, you know? I ended up getting an apartment in a bad part of town, Crack City, which you get sober anywhere, because I sure did. I'd get out of that truck and I'd hold my breath until I got my apartment and close the door, because I didn't want to test positive when I had to pee, you know? <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I was willing, I became willing to do whatever was asked of me to do. I got involved with the H&I committee and I started going to the Lions. If the Lions Club wanted to know about AA, I'm your girl, take me, you know? I started doing whatever I could do, and uh, my probation officer took notice, and she and I are still really good friends today. And uh, she helped me get into school, where I eventually got some initials behind my name and ended up getting a career that, uh, in 2000, I was able to retire from. And, you know, my life just took on a new meaning. But I was going into the prisons. First 15 years I was sober, I was taking meetings into a prison somewhere. Sometimes I was spreading the disease, sometimes I was spreading recovery, but by God, I'm there, you know? <laughs> JCs want to know about AA? Let's go. Treatment centers? Let's go. I am just all about it. And I served that probation for about three and a, three and a half years, and the judge called me in his chambers, and he said, Mickey, I hear about the good work you're doing in the community. Now, I'm doing these things because I don't want to die. I don't want to drink. I don't want to die. And the judge says, I hear about the things you're doing in the community. And I believe you're a changed person. And I'm releasing you from the bondage of the state of Texas. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. My probation officer told me to take it a little step further. And I've learned to just do the footwork, leave the results up to God. 
And in 1994, I received a full pardon from the governor of the state of Texas. Now, what is that about? You know, do I need that to stroke my ego? I can assume y'all can tell I don't. Um, <laughs> but I knew God had a purpose in that. And I would fi eventually find out what it was. It took 18 years, but I would find out what it was. I had worked my way up into middle management at a nonprofit organization, and I worked hard. You know, my children came back to live with me when I was five years sober, and I had children, I had, was going to school, I was now working, and I worked my way up to middle management. And uh, I don't know how many years it's been now, I guess about 25 years ago, it was 18 at the time, I, uh, uh, they had major funding cuts in the state of Texas. And whenever you have major funding cuts, the first thing that goes is middle management. And so I was without a job. And it's the first time I had even had to look for a job since I raised my hand in that meeting at the Brazos Club. And I was unemployed for about three days. And I get a phone call and a familiar voice says, hey, I hear you're looking for a job. And I said, yes. And she said, well, why don't you come work with us? And that familiar voice was my probation officer. And the job I just retired from was uh, working at Brazos County Adult Probation, where I was on probation. <laughs> I'm in the computer and on the computer. But I worked really, really hard to help keep people out of jail and prison for alcohol and drug problems, you know? And they would come and they would sit across at my desk and they would say, yeah, lady, but you don't understand. And I'd say, well, you're probably right, but let's see what we can do, you know? And I got involved with drug court and, uh, you know, really worked really hard at that. And, and I don't miss all the administration and all the red tape, but I sure miss, uh, miss the drugs, you know? I, I sure do miss them. And I have a lot of lasting relationships that has come from that. But, you know, life just keeps getting better and better as I continue to uh, work those steps and, and work the, pro the program, not my program, the program. You know, when I got through with that fifth step, I, I'm telling you, as my friend had said, the ego was gone. And what happened when I got through with that fifth step, a lot of people talk about having a relief and all this. Um, what my experience was awful. When I got through with that fifth step, my sponsor sent me home to that bad apartment in a bad part of town for that hour of careful consideration of the first five proposals. And I'm going to tell you what, I got it home, and during that hour, she said, not 24, not 48, you know, an hour. And during that hour, I had to go to the restroom. And when I turned the light on in that restroom and saw my reflection in the mirror, for the first time, I saw who I truly was, and it was ugly. I saw how dishonest, how manipulative, how conceited, how arrogant. You know, I saw all of that just so vividly clear, it just made me sick to my stomach. My saving grace was step six and seven, because for the first time in my life, I knew what was wrong with me, and I knew with your direction and God's strength, I could change, and I did. I did, and I got off that probation early, and there was a time when I thought I was going to have to leave my community because I had too many connections. I knew too many, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was the old timers that said, you will stay here and you will look this community in the eye and you will pay back what you've done. And that's what I've done and that's what I'm still trying to do. You know, I get to vote today. I should never have been able to vote. Never cared about voting until they told me I couldn't, you know. <laughs> and I've served on a jury before. 
not only served on a jury, I've been foreman of a jury, you know? And I just wanted to yell out, hey, there's 12 steps that can move you from there to here, you know? Um, just things that we take for granted that just become so vital and so important. But most importantly, I've been able to heal the relationships with my family. And thank God I don't get what I deserve. I keep turning the page of the book. I keep doing what's asked of me to do. And life just keeps getting better. Um, about 18 years ago, I was meeting Larry. And, you know, I get phone messages and phone calls. And now it's Facebook. And there's a lot of social media, people that contact you. And, and I came home one night. I was really tired. I helped a friend with a funeral. I'd gone to give a little talk somewhere and came home. And, you know, when you're too tired to sleep. And I went and I said, well, let me check my emails. And I got an email from a young girl named Kimberly who lives in Sugarland, Texas, about an hour and a half from where I am. And uh, we communicated back and forth, and then my daughter and I went to meet Kimberly. And Kimberly's the daughter I gave up for adoption in 1972. How good is God? You know, you can't outgive God. It's just been wonderful. This past Tuesday, I went, uh, she finally married the guy she's been shacked up with for 13 years and they finally got married and I was there and I was sitting in the mom's place you know and we've had to work at the relationship but you know what a blessing what a miracle I get Mother's Day cards from all my children now and it happened in her time and in God's time not in my time I know if I just keep doing the next right things I expect miracles today they don't just happen I expect them and I wait for them, and I'm excited by them. And you know, I'm probably not what I should be, and I'm probably not what I could be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. Thank y'all for having me. <laughs>